Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we're speaking with singer, actress, author, and entrepreneur Vanessa Williams. Vanessa shot to fame at age 20 when she became the first black woman to be crowned Miss America. But that was just the beginning. For more than 30 years, Vanessa has had a storied career as a platinum hit singer and award-winning actress on stage and screen. Vanessa has fans in many generations, thanks in part to her classic love song, Save the Best for Last, and her role of Wilhelmina Slater on Ugly Betty. Vanessa is also a businesswoman, a children's book author, a mother of four, and an advocate for racial justice. She's here today to share the secret of her long career, how she pressed on despite the racism she encountered, and how she's hoping to advance the careers of other Black performers. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Vanessa, your long and successful career has been so multifaceted. It started when you became the first black woman to be crowned Miss America when you were just 20. How did your life change at that moment? Yes, 37 years ago. <laughs> my life changed overnight because I was a junior, uh, about to start my junior year. I was going to be doing my junior year abroad in London as part of my musical theater training at Syracuse. And I had entered the pageant out of necessity for scholarship money. And uh, I was in a show that got canceled and I had the time free and ended up winning Miss Syracuse, Miss New York State, and Miss America within six months. So something that I've learned in life is you never know what's going to happen, but just be prepared. And then you have to be brave enough and daring enough to go where you're taken. At 20 years old, I grew up in New York. I would say in terms of being progressive, I felt that in 1983, we were a pretty progressive society. And once I won, uh, it was a rude awakening when I realized not only uh, was I getting hate mail, but death threats from around the country because of the color of my skin and being black. It was a tremendous obstacle because I was 20 and I look back and I see my children and I say, oh my God, how did I get through all of that at such a young age? But I had, I had no choice. And luckily my parents were completely solid, supportive, and knew that there was no alternative to quit. I had to persevere. So I went to not only everything that the Miss America schedule already had for the year, but did double that because of being the first Black Miss America, which included NAACP and Urban League and Historically Black Colleges and all these wonderful opportunities that never really even cared about a Miss America. So it was a tremendous a shock. It was a tremendous honor and a complete wake-up call for me socially and politically. You know, this was a long time ago and you've done so much since then, but I want to talk briefly about the scandal and you, how you came out on the other side of it so gracefully. You were forced to give up your crown because of some nude photos that you had not given permission to share were leaked to a magazine. More than 30 years later, the Miss America organization apologized to you for the way you were treated. How do you think about all that today? 
It seems like a lifetime ago and having lived my dream, which is to be successful in what I know that I was good at and had dreamt about, um, I look back and I look at my life and realize that you can have a plan, but you never know what really is going to happen to you in your life. And that's when the integrity and the work ethic kicks in. When I look back at my career, I've been able to, I'm surrounded by presidents behind me on my desk that are in frames that I've had the opportunity to meet eight of in my lifetime. I've been able to, you know, uh, sing in front of millions of people uh, as part of the Super Bowl, the Oscars, the World Series, the Grammys. I mean, I've had, and also opening night on Broadway several times. So I've been able to achieve what I wanted plus more, listening to myself on the radio, never thought that would ever happen. (laughs) But I know that all my struggles have made me who I am. And at this point in life, what I thoroughly enjoy is being a mentor, to talk about struggle and perseverance with young people that need to hear it. And particularly in this time uh, that we're living in now, I was born in 1963. That was the year that Kennedy was killed. My parents were starting their lives as parents in the middle of the civil rights era, worried, what kind of world am I bringing my child into? When I was their age, I was raising my children out in California and Rodney King happened. Same age as my parents, again, that incident said, where am I gonna bring my children in a safe environment? And I ended up moving from California to New York because I thought this was a safer haven for them Uh, and more protected. We're dealing with social injustice yet again. So it's cyclical, but it's also a call to action as an adult and also an opportunity to teach your children at this point on about equality and about being different and embracing and being inclusive. Did you ever think that losing the crown was tied to your race? I have no idea. Of course, there are a lot of Uh, strong feelings from many of my fans and family members uh, and people that worked alongside with me. All I know is I did the best job I could and the people that work with me appreciated everything that I did. And I felt that I had a a tremendous 10 months being an example of uh, what a Miss America should have been. You didn't let that scandal define you or your career. You chose to stay in the limelight you eventually became an award-winning singer and actress. You know, talk about that process and that decision to stay in the game. Well, I um, I'm a fighter, I guess. I, I, you know, when you have the fire in your belly, I don't know whether it's familial or or what. But my parents, uh, my mother is a is a is a piece of work, and there's no option to quit in my in my family. So I never looked at, oh, my life is over and my career will never happen. I knew, okay, this is going to be rough. And once the dust settles, people will get a chance to see who I am. I've always, mm-hmm. I've done musical theater my whole life. I've sang, I've danced, I've acted. So I had all those hours and experiences on stage within me. So I knew that I wasn't creating a new personality and say, mm, let, me, let me see if I can try some acting now that I'm well-known and famous. That had nothing to do with it. I knew that once the dust settled, I get a chance to really show who I was. And I should have named, I have a book called You Have No Idea that I wrote in 2012, but uh, I should have really named it. I didn't know she could do that. 
oh, I didn't know she, I've heard that my entire career. And I guess it's better to be underestimated and blow them away than have high expectations and disappoint people. You didn't stop there. You have your own clothing line on HSN, and you recently wrote a children's book called Bubble Kisses. Throughout the years, how do you decide which opportunities to pursue? I think you have to be open to, to listening to what comes your way and being flexible. Bubble Kisses was a song that I was given by one of my friends probably over 25 years ago. And I said, I love it. One of these days I'm gonna do a children's album and then time went on and I never got a chance to you know, devote the time. Now that I'm a uh, an empty nester, I had time. And when I was giving um, my youngest daughter, who is now gonna be a junior in college, we were doing her orientation and I was at the family barbecue and one of the other mothers said, you know, if you ever figure, if you ever wanna write a book, I'm a publisher, I'd love to. And I said, I actually have an idea. And she happened to live in New York and we got together and that's how it manifested. So I tell people that are looking for guidance, yes, you can have a plan, you can have your outline of your life and everything and be prepared, but you never know where life's gonna take you. So just make sure that you're willing to take a chance because that's when things happen, opportunities happen, when you're willing to take a chance. It doesn't mean you won't fail, but it, you don't know who's with you on that journey if you fail that notices you and will send you somewhere else. It's kind of haphazard, but it's all also having tremendous faith because I know that I've got a mission on this earth. I don't know what it is, but I've already been blazing some trails. I've always already opened doors and I know the people before me I've been lucky enough to work with, like Diane Carroll has played my mother, Eartha Kitt has played my mother, Lena Horne has given me an award in her honor. And these are people that I grew up as icons. Debbie Allen, I've, I call a friend. Uh, so these are icons, mentors, and you never know when you'll get a chance to work with your, your idols, but also how, it, how much it enriches your life, which I'm always so thankful for. You are absolutely a trailblazer for women of color in entertainment and all women. Black female entertainers still deal with typecasting, a lack of roles, and even when they get them, often unequal pay. What do you think still needs to change? I think in terms of equity in theater, television, film, it's up to your representatives to fight hard for you. For instance, um, one of the people that I work with was representing Diane Carroll years ago. And uh, there was a, a Broadway show uh, called Sunset Boulevard that was on, that Glenn Close was starring in on Broadway. And uh, Cameron McIntosh is one of the producers. So they had the idea Diane Carroll would be perfect as a, uh, as a, a silent screen movie star. She can sing it well. She won a Tony for No Strings back in the day. She's a Broadway star, what a great idea. So they have a meeting and in the meeting they said, well, there were no black silent screen film stars then, it, it can't be done. And they said, it's a fictitious role. It can be done. You made it up. There is no real Gloria Swanson. She can do it because it's a made up character. And she ended up starring in it. So it's those people that have to think out of the box and then fight for you to get the role. 
And it's also for the, the directors and the producers to think out of the box, too. I played Rosie in Bye Bye Birdie for ABC TV in 1995. No one said, oh, a black person can't play a Puerto Rican. They said, okay. The team wanted me, and they opened that up. Kiss the Spider Woman. My Broadway theatrical debut, and Chita Rivera had done that first, and it's a, a fictitious novel from Argentina. But again, they didn't say she's not Argentinian, she can't do it. They knew that if I could dance and sing, and it worked. So it takes your team to fight, but also to be creative to make it work. Some performers have advocated for equality by asking for inclusion writers in their contracts. What do you think of those, and can those work? I think it's important to negotiate and be open. When you come with a manifesto, people get very uh, resistant and resentful. And of course, there is a fight that ensues after that. But if you've got something unique to bring to the role, again, it's up to your team to fight and change things. That's how you, you work it into your specific contract, by demanding things and changing things. And when the bottom line is money. If they know that they can make money off the star, off the personality, they're willing to do anything to accommodate. You recently helped found a group called Black Theater United with other actors such as Audra McDonald to combat racism in theater. Tell us about that work and what you're hoping to change. Well, Black Theater United came about June 1st, I think is when we had our first Zoom call. And it was on the heels of, of George Floyd. And I think we were all paralyzed and stunned. And that turned to rage. And uh, I got a call from Audra and Lachance, like, I don't know what we can do, but we need to do something. So Brian Stokes Mitchell and Norm Lewis, and there's a whole bunch of us, I think there's 19 of us founders, Billy Porter. And we said, not only do we wanna confront racism within our world, but let's also have initiatives that we can be an umbrella and have initiatives that we can get behind and highlight. So our first initiative, we've worked with Stacey Abrams, and we uh, are all about uh, Fair Count, which is about the census. So we've done uh, Action Tuesdays, we've had town halls inviting her and also Dr. Janine Abrams-McLean, because she also runs um, Fair Count, and those are our initiatives just in, the, in this the first six weeks to talk about voting uh, rights and also being counted so you can have power when you're talking about changing legislation. The only way you can do that is if you are counted in the census and then you vote. So we've been invited to a bunch of forums so people can hear what our issues might be. We're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, Vanessa is gonna tell us how her childhood shaped her thinking about racial justice and how being a parent put it into new perspective. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. 
As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code podcast. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. So, Vanessa, when you were growing up, your family was the first black family in a white neighborhood. And you've talked about how education and black history was really important in your parents' household. How did that foundation set you up? Well, both my parents are music educators. So when you are a child, you uh, have no choice but to learn, and you're learning all the time. I tell a story in my, my book that we would have our family dinners every night and uh, you know we would have flashcards sometimes at the dinner table. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth. And those are things that as a teacher, they were constantly educating their children because that was important to them. And I thank God that they, they did. I would get uh, sometimes uh, people that would say, well, you don't really sound black, you're not really black. And of course you feel uh, a little defensive, but as an adult, I look back, my mother was a vocal major. She sang opera in college. Diction was so important. And my parents were gonna let me slide speaking improperly. And the reason why I, when I sing and people go, you know, I can hear every word you sing. Your diction is so good. It's because my parents forced us to. We had no choice. (laughs) But I also want to say, when I decided to go into the arts, my parents did not say, "Uh, get a real job. They said, if you really want to go into this, then we will support you. It's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of rejection, but you're going to have to work hard. But we feel that you've got the talent to be able to have a career. So there are a lot of people in my industry that are tremendously successful and have a chip on their shoulder because nobody believed in them. And nobody said, oh, I believe in you. You know, they said, get a real job. It'll never happen. It's a pipe dream. And there's a lot of people like that who are tremendous success in our business that you find all this stuff out when you work with people and you say, God, why are they so miserable? They've got it all. And then you find out their background and you hear that they never got the pat on the back or the encouragement that they needed. I was so lucky that my parents believed in me and my talent. Speaking about race a little bit more, how are the conversations that you have with your own kids who are adults now the same or different from the ones you had with your parents? And are there any points of tension? Well, the, the funny thing is that when I left on the heels of Rodney King and the riots and Malibu was on fire and people were getting pulled out of their cars and it was uh, a nightmare, I moved back to Westchester, New York in 1992. My two daughters at the time are five and three and I thought, okay, I'll find a place that's similar to mine and my parents will help be able to raise them. And then when they go through being the only black person in class and all those issues that are bubbling up again, you forget, oh yeah, that's what it was like. And uh, for me, because I went through the whole school system being the one black girl in class and then luckily uh, there became you know a few more families that moved into uh, Chappaqua. But uh, you hear similar stories and it breaks your heart because you try to protect your children from hearing the N-word, being not included, you know, having people 
touch your hair without permission, being the, the brunt of jokes, or saying, I can tell this joke because you're not really black. This black guy, and you don't realize that I put them into the same system that I got out of. Those were the the parallels that I thought I would be able to avoid because again, I thought we had progressed, but everybody has their issues. But it's also realization that this is the world we live in and there are differences and it's a tribal world and you find your tribe, but you're also proud of who you are, know who you are. And I think my, my kids are lovely, they're grounded, they are woke, so to speak, but they're um, great citizens of this United States and they do feel connected to it all. Uh, one of the, the wonderful things I got a chance to do through this whole pandemic era was for the 4th of July, I was asked to do the Capital 4th show. And I've done that before. I've done Memorial Day. It's the same group of people. It's in Washington, D.C., and they're a lovely group of people. And when I first got the invitation, um, they wanted me to sing Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand. And uh, I said, A, I don't feel like, not only it's not my song, but Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand in COVID times? No. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> B, uh, and this was like right at the top of June that they were going to do the pre-record, and I said there are so many people that do not feel that feel disenfranchised from this United States of America independence mm -hmm. right now, and I cannot get up there and ignore what's going on. So in order to be involved, I've got to be able to say what I need to say and sing when I need to sing, and they were gracious enough through negotiations, and I've got a great team, and I sang. Uh, two beautiful songs, a medley of um, from Sweeney Todd, Not While I'm Around, which is nothing's going to harm you, not while I'm around. And it's about a mother saying nothing's going to harm you, not while I'm around, which connected to the rage that we were all feeling when a mother is afraid to let her son go out or daughter go out in the world because you don't know what's going to happen to them, which was blatantly clear with the George Floyd uh, killing. And then it went into somewhere, which is basically about there's a place for us, somewhere a place for us, hold my hand and I'm halfway there. And it's about inclusion and unity. And it worked out perfectly. I initially wanted a whole male black choir behind me, but of course, social distancing, I got four, which is still good. And it was simple and to the point and made the point. And the other component of that was before I sang, I said, listen, I want to share all the wonderful achievements that black people have done to help build America. And we talked about inventors and, and trailblazers. And I got a chance to highlight two of my great, great grandfathers who I had their pictures because I had done that show, Who Do You Think You Are? And I'd done all my genealogy. One was born a, a free man in 1842, free man of color, married a white woman in 1863, signed up for the colored troops to uh, in, in Queens, New York, uh, True 26, Company I, and went and fought for freedom of slaves uh, in, in 1863. So I have a picture of him with his Union uh, uniform and the American flag draped over his, his lap. Then I have another picture of my other great-great-grandfather who was born a slave in Tennessee, could read, write, ended up 
being a superintendent of schools and then elected to be one of the first black representatives in the Tennessee State House bought by Shelby County. So it shows that, yes, we've been here for hundreds of years. We've helped build this country. We have fought for this country. We are American. We are patriots. Do not cross that line and say that uh, you're not a patriot uh, as, as a person of color. Are you disappointed or frustrated that we're still having these conversations in 2020? I mean, it, it gets weary. It does get weary. And that's why people need to know history. And I'm, I learned more this past couple months, even through Instagram, I've learned more about people are sharing different stories and talks and seminars. I've learned more about um, history and particularly black history over the last couple of months than I ever was allowed to because it's not taught in school. We're catching up with things that we should have known uh, that now we are, you know, finding out. You've long been active in the NAACP, specifically the organization's Legal Defense and Education Fund, which fights for racial justice. What has this work meant to you over the years? Well, I've, uh, I want to, I think I have six uh, image awards behind me. When I got my first image award, I was in tears because my image had been trashed so deeply as a dethroned, even though I resigned, a, a dethroned um, Miss America. And then after my first album came out in 1988, uh, after working really hard and having a recording career and having hits and not being a one-hit wonder, getting on that stage and uh, being acknowledged for my image and from my own people really hit home. And I remember looking out and seeing Ella Fitzgerald clapping and like tearing up at me getting acknowledgement. And then you realize how deep it all goes. I remember when I won in 83, elderly black women would come up to me and say, I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. Mm. And that's deep. That goes deep. That means that they never thought they would ever see it in their lifetime. And I got a chance to be that person that opened the door. That's what we hope we can be with Black Theatre United, like uh, NAACP, where people can come and find unity and solace and also a platform to be able to make change. Thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me and uh, keep the fight, keep going. Absolutely. If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. Our producer is Trine Norrie. Our executive producer is Kateri Oakum. Additional help from personal finance editor Beret Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. <laughs>